Well, thanks very much, John. Um, I'm not going to be depressing about Iraq. I'm going to be depressing about a much broader area, uh, including Iraq. Um, so uh, John's introduced me. Um, uh, back in the day, I was uh, an EOD technician uh, and a counter-terrorist uh, search coordinator. And actually, in the world of EOD, search is, in some ways, the more important one of those two things. My DPhil here at Oxford is about monitoring and verification. Um, but today, I'm going to talk 15 minutes about uh, ERW, um, explosive remnants of war. I'm going to illustrate this talk with a number of photographs. Um, none of them are distressing. It's my trigger warning there. Um, I'm also going to talk in the most general terms about what is colloquially termed bomb disposal. Bomb disposal. Um, please note, I'm not going to say anything that could help anyone make a device or conceal a device, and I most strongly advise you not to do either of those two things. That's me covered. Having said that, on with the fun. Right. A couple of years ago, I was driving through Bosnia with a colleague, uh, a German in her mid-30s, a student of international relations, but without special knowledge of conflict. Um, in a semi-rural area, we drove past what was effectively a minefield in someone's front garden. And when I pointed this out, my friend, and bear in mind we'd already driven past um, war-damaged buildings and the like, absolutely refused to believe this fenced area was a minefield. We were in Europe, the war had ended 20 years ago, it was just not possible that that would be a minefield right by the side of the road we were driving along. Now, as we're all aware, there is, there is never a neat junction between war and peace. Um, however, whilst we can hope to ameliorate structural and cultural violence in an instance, there is a general hope and understanding that whatever peace may be, it does at least equate to the cessation of direct violence. In the, this 20-year-old minefield, my friend saw an anomaly, the existence of a weapon of war as armed and with the same potential as it had possessed the day it was deployed. However, the end of what we might call the hot conflict had occasioned a change in whatever happened to be buried in that garden. What was there had ceased to be a weapon and had become an explosive remnant of war. I want to say two things and make one argument. Firstly, what is ERW? Why does it matter? Secondly, as my friend asked me, why is ERW? Why isn't all this stuff just cleared away when the conflict ends? Now, ERW, I suggest, threatens conflict transformation and thus positive peace. Fundamentally, ERW prevents the establishment or reclamation of sovereignty and the legitimacy and stability that this can entail. So what is ERW? Well, we're very aware of campaigns to ban anti-personnel mines and latterly cluster bombs. However, anything that's fired from a gun or a launcher, dropped from a plane, thrown by hand or left in the earth can become ERW. Between 15 and 30% of armaments fail to fully or correctly function when they're employed. Now, there's a number of reasons for that, um, but the majority of the reasons are to do with the way these things are used rather than the way they are constructed. And I'm going to give an example. What we have here, uh, we're in Sierra Leone here, is a beluga bomblet. Um, and they come in packs of uh, 88. So with a 15 to 30% ratio, we can reckon that thing's got between 12 and 25 friends scattered around it. Why? 
Well, if you look carefully at the bottom part, you'll see that this thing deploys by parachute, and it's been dropped over jungle. The parachutes catch in the vegetation, like this one. I love this. It's my favourite bomb. I know I shouldn't say that. Now, obviously, that's been there for such a long time, the tree's actually grown around it. And the way we got that out is by jacking it out with a car jack. Um, but that's an example of why these things don't activate as planned. Another example. Now we're in Kosovo. At the top, we have an anti-personnel mine. It's called a PMA-3, and it's been temporarily disabled with ice. It's filled with water, the ice has frozen, and now the thing can't, can't move. You can see someone's trodden on that. You can see the footprint, and it hasn't gone off. But come the spring, when it thaws out, it's going to come back to life. At the bottom, we have an anti-tank mine, the TM-46. The exact opposite. At the moment, it's bobbing around in the slush, and you can see a vehicle's driven over the top of it. Come the winter, when that all freezes, the next vehicle that drives over it is going to send it off. So what we've got here are these two devices turning themselves on and off as the environment changes around them. According to the United Nations Mine Action Service, ERW affects over 70 countries and thousands of casualties are recorded every year. ERW is not regionally focused. In 2011, the six countries most affected were Afghanistan, Cambodia, Colombia, Myanmar, Pakistan, and South Sudan, widely dispersed across the world. Now, this is produced by an organization called Walk With Fear, and I think it gives a really great explanation of the impact of ERW. It talks about a ripple effect. So here we have a child is disabled with a mine, a family must care for him and their educational economic possibilities are reduced. Their community is affected. Such incidents take place all over the country and the country's recovery from conflict becomes affected um, in social ways. So having identified the problem, let's think about the solution, or rather the lack of a solution. Now, this is a still from a movie about bomb disposal officers in Iraq, and I'm going to use it to make a point about terminology. In this discipline, terminology is everything. Very exact descriptions equating to very exact solutions and the use of very precise mapping and systems of marking and location on the earth. But confusingly, some of these definitions are also used in general parlance or they've got different meanings, depending on which institution you happen to be talking to. But I can, however, make a couple of basic distinctions. Okay, so that's the movie. That's what it looks like in reality. That's not bad. Okay. So that guy up there, uh, who in reality would have passed out within five minutes in the heat wearing that suit, he's just pulled on a bit of what we call detonating cord. And all of those shells have risen up out of the ground around him. Now, forgetting for the moment, he's just uh, half lifted up half a ton with one hand. We have here a number of different things. In their original state, these shells, these are shells, obviously, um, were conventional munitions. They were made to be fired through the air 
from a large gun. It may be that they were fired and they went off without land, sorry, and they didn't go off when they landed. And that would make them unexploded ordnance or UXO. But actually, it's much more likely that some insurgent took them from a bomb dump and he converted them into what we see here, an improvised explosive device or an IED. Now, had that IED not been discovered, it may have lain there until the war had ended, at which point any conventional munitions that remained in the bomb dump and any UXOs lying around and the IED would all have become explosive remnants of war. So we're looking at a large catchment. Back to the movie. I can talk about this because it's a movie. So I can say things about it I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about with a picture of a real IED. Every munition, conventional or improvised, constitutes what we call an igniferous chain. An impulse, and in that movie I think the impulse was going to be a battery, which wouldn't have worked, I'll put that aside, um, is transmitted along a link to a detonator that ignites a primary charge which initiates a main charge. Now the main charge causes a massive rapid expansion of air that we call a blast. This blast can propel shrapnel, lift earth, ignite a fuel, hurl chemicals, or all sorts of other nasty things. But that is essentially what you have in any munition. Now, in order to defeat any munition, we have to separate the igniferous chain. And to do this, we first will need to work out what the device is. And this is why ERW presents us with so many problems. I'm going to talk about what I call the problem of knowing. Now, in that box is material left in a hut by the mercenary outfit Sandline. We're back in Sierra Leone again. And each piece, as you can see, is clearly labelled. It's in good condition. We've got a, a claymore on the top left, uh, some flares. It's a parachute flare down the bottom, various types of grenade, etc., etc. We know exactly what we have in there. And we know exactly where it is. Take that box, the dip of the earth, bit of plastic explosive, it's gone. Okay? That is not the problem. This is the problem. This is half a mile away from where that box was. And that little pile has obviously been there for some time. Also, it's been burnt, probably when a farmer cleared a field for agriculture. He burnt the field out. Now, I can make some guesses about what's in there. Um, there's at least two different types of mortar shells. Um, this is a rocket-propelled grenade. This is the motor of a rocket-propelled grenade. These, I think, are some sort of uh, small-caliber shell of an anti-aircraft gun. I don't genuinely know what the thing is on the bottom left, and I've got no idea what could be underneath the ground. Worse, I don't know what state those things are in. They could be completely inert. They could be incredibly sensitive. In the nose of a rocket-propelled grenade is a crystal that is so sensitive to temperature that you can set the thing off by casting your shadow over it. So the problem I have here is the problem of knowing. I don't know what that is. All right, this is quite cute. This is a Falkland Islands. 
where the penguins, who don't weigh very much, and they've got big paddly feet that disperse their weight, live in the 102 minefields that were left by the Argentinians in 1982. Now, why have these minefields not been cleared? After all, Britain has signed up to the Saskatchewan Convention and is not meant to have any minefields laid on its ground. The reason can serve several different problems of knowing. There are no records to show how many mines the Argentinians put into each field. Worse, when they were laid, they weren't actually conceived of as fields. The fences that are now surround them were put in after the conflict had ended. With no knowledge of what is in each of the fields, we have no way of knowing when everything has been taken out. Now let me expand on this point by taking us to Bosnia. I4S4 and the military and civilian organisations that came after demined to a common, um, what's called, entity army standard of 99.6%. And 99.6% is an extraordinarily high percentage. It's time-consuming and expensive. The vegetation is cleared mechanically or by burning or by powerful defoliants. Mechanical rollers, possibly uh, operated by robots, break up the ground. Every two inches of the ground is probed by hand. Different types of electronic detectors are passed over that ground. That gives you 99.6%. So an area which might have contained 1,000 devices has 996 of them taken out. Four of them remain. The only way to truly say an area is clear is to possess a complete minefield record and to remove every device on it by serial number. That never happens. Back to the Falkland Islands. Now, this guy is not conducting mine clearance. He is conducting minefield maintenance. The best way to break the igniferous chain is to ensure the initial impulse is never provided. And a good way to do that is to put a fence around all the devices so nobody ever treads on them. However, in some terrain, sand, anywhere with running water, because some mines float, and in this case, PT bog, mines move around. At regular intervals, people like this inspect the minefields with viewing devices to see if anything is approaching the fence. If it is, they will go and destroy it. And here, a mine is about to be deflagrated with a device that will burn so fast and so hot, the explosive is actually burnt away faster than it can go off. However, as it can never be ascertained what is in the minefield, there is no point ever trying to clear it. These minefields will be there forever. And this, we must recall, is a first world country with the latest technology in a time of peace. Okay, again, Second World War now, and now we're in London in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics. As brownfield sites are cleared, new underground tunnels are dug, deeper foundations are sunk, the legacy of the Blitz emerges. It is one of the little ironies that technicians like these are expert on German devices, but they know nothing about British ones. In fact, if they found a British device, maybe from a crashed aircraft, they would actually get a German team in to deal with it, and vice versa. It's true. So let's use our new knowledge to analyse what we have here. Okay, well, first of all, this is an item of war in a time of peace. So this is a piece of ERW. 
It is a bomb. It fell from the sky. And that's the lug that attached it to a German bomber 70 years ago. Accordingly, it would have hit the ground at about 120 miles an hour, its mass and velocity affording it such energy that it buried itself several metres underground. In fact, it hit the ground so hard, it damaged itself. Its tail flew off. Okay? So accordingly, we don't know what state that is in, the problem of knowing. Consider now the igniferous chain. The means of impulse for bombs such as this is a fuse. And the link between the fuse and the charge, which obviously is inside it, is made by screwing a fuse into a fuse well. Now, there are four possible fuse wells in this location, on this thing. Um, on the nose, there's two at the top, and there's one in the base. Now, I suspect in this case, the fuse was in the nose, and these guys have already removed it by spinning it off with a remote thing we call a rocket wrench. Having successfully broken the igniferous chain, this device is completely harmless. It will be put on the back of a truck and taken away. But the point is, after 70 years after the event, the capital city of one of the most developed countries in the world still hosts ERW. What hope is there, thus, for developing countries? Positive peace pertains to the ending of structural violence, the violence done to people when their basic needs are not met. That ERW prevents the cultivation of land and the return to territory occupied before conflict is well documented. But ERW is rather more than this. It is a continuation of direct violence, and thus a counter to negative peace, after a conflict has supposedly ended. Back in Kosovo, the autumn of 1998, an Albanian school. Now, this is a rudimentary booby trap using an anti-tank mine, uh, and if that went off, it would level the entire building. This is violence in supposedly a time of peace. Sovereignty is a defining principle of the modern state. It supposes territorially bounded entities inside which the legitimate use of violence is controlled. ERW are not legitimate, they are violent. Ergo, the ability to control ERW is a measure of the existence of the state. In the developed world, as I've shown, ERW may be controlled, but it cannot be eradicated. In transitional environments, the attempt to control ERW is an attempt to protect the citizenry, to keep material from the hands of insurgents, but most of all, to create a new sovereignty and thus build positive peace.